Well, that interesting piece of music lets you know, I think, yes. that it's time for another one of Simon Mayo's Books of the Year. Correct. It's show two of our podcast series. It is, yes. yes. So it's, uh, very well done. I mean, we obviously had that teaser trailer last week, didn't we? Yes. We're so not counting those as episodes, are we? Does that get, in which Probably case, not. Is this show four? Show four? I'm already lost. No. Let's say, let's say episode two. Episode two with... Yeah, so maybe the little teaser one was 1A. Yes. This is show two, and there'll be 2A. There will, yes. In a week's time. Mm, we're already making this far too complicated. Yes, I think so. We made it to show two, which yes. is a very exciting thing. Uh, my voice is a little bit rough, a little bit rugged. Why is that? It's just a disease, <laughs> as you can hear. So if you hear me eating sweets... Not really sweets, they're, thro they're these throaty ones. Oh, yes, no, you've spoken about those before, which I apparently have. are very good. And these throaty things, I only have them because Tom Jones and Jamie Cullum, within a, the, wow. within a week or a day or something okay. like that, both said, oh, what you need is these. OK. And I mean, I thought, we're not getting paid for mentioning these sweets, are Well, we? I haven't mentioned them. Oh, right. Okay. I mean, if they were sherbet lemons or something, that would be fine. <laughs> <clears throat> but the advantage of these is that I can, I've got one in my mouth now, but you can't I tell. I can't tell. You can't tell. Wow. We should, we should be sponsored. We should be sponsored by them. Not until we get some money. Are we mentioning what the names of those okay. sweets are? Well, I might. Shall I mention them now and see what happens? Well, they'll do, are they going to send it? Well, okay, go ahead. This is why we don't do business because you know. No, that's true. They they're going to get a free mention without us. They get a free mention, but if they've got any sense of corporate responsibility, mm -hmm. then the people at Vocal Zone will go. Vocal Zone. They're nice people. We should <laughs> we should get involved and be a part of that. Imagine imagine where we'd be. Anyway, so we're here on show two. So what we're going to do is. So every other week is a show with guests, and then in the weeks where there are gaps, it'll be just Matt and me reading out yes. fan mail. Yes, saying how fabulous we are, which are frankly going to be my favourite episodes. <clears throat> what, uh, what's, what's the email that we have that people need to... Booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. How simple is that to remember? So that's booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. And people can just get in touch. They can get in touch on that email, yes. So what we'd like to we, uh, we'd like to hear from you just uh, you know what you think about the show as long as it's nice. <laughs> also, uh, stuff you're reading, yes, stuff you really like, stuff you'd like us to cover, uh -huh. stuff that we have covered, uh, and you want to tell us what you thought about those books. Yes, and what you thought about the guests as well, because obviously the last one we had was Robbie Williams and Linda Laplante, which was if you're going to have an opening episode. To start. Goodness me, they were good. So coming up on on this particular show, we have Louis de Bernier who um, I guess you'll notice when you hear the conversation that we have that I'm going to try and avoid mentioning Captain Corelli. Yeah, I, I think he, he was happy about that, yes. Because, yeah. I th because I think that's probably... You know what? I've answered everything that there is to answer. <laughs> yes. Nicolas Cage, what was he like? Hmm. Yeah, now that was the film. Yeah, let's yes, not I do. Let's <laughs> the two. So Louis de Bernier uh, will we'll be here talking about his new novel and we won't be discussing Captain Corelli. No, or Nicolas Cage. But there are so many people who do remember where they were when they were reading Captain Corelli, uh -huh. did an awful lot for uh, tourism in Greece and all that kind of stuff. Uh, anyway, so we'll talk, we'll talk to Louis, but we won't mention that big hit. Also, Ben Rhodes is on the way. Basically, he was Deputy National Security Advisor to Barack Obama. Wow. He's the kind of guy that you could just say, Shall we shoot the breeze, please, Ben? Because you know a lot of a lot of stuff. So Louis and Ben um, uh, on their way. So to the fan mail, then. Yes, let's get into the fan mail. 
Wow. We've done very well. Do you want to go first? Yes. Okay. Well, there was uh, that we got an email from Sue Irwin saying, firstly, not sure how I did it, but I have downloaded my first podcast, Books of the Year, and I loved it. Yes. Really interesting content. Highlight is having the pair of you together. Obvious rapport. Leaps out at the listener. Funny, warm, intelligent, informative. Thanks so much. Keep it up. That kind of stuff means it's going to get read out. If you re- email that stuff in, we will read it out. So that's funny, warm, intelligent, and yes. informative. Hello. We got a review. Um, our first podcast got a review in the Times. Hello, and, goodness me! Um, I'm not reading out that first bit <laughs> <laughs> for uh, reasons Redacted. that will become clear. <laughs> no, 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 no. Anyway, it continues. Yeah. <laughs> And it's good fun. Clearly yes. all those years of drive time have kept his contacts book filled nicely. Guests on this first show, Robbie Williams and Linda LaPlante, who are particularly excellent, inherently interesting with a great stash of anecdotes. Perhaps more interesting was the reaction to this podcast. It went straight into the charts in the top ten. And then, boom, it says. I yeah. wonder why that would have been there. Boom. Love it. Uh, and if you want to review us and then leave uh, a five-star comment. <laughs> yes, on iTunes, five stars, that would be nice. Uh, nice to give the guests lots of time to relax, express themselves. Linda LaPlante and Robbie Williams, both very entertaining. The short story was excellent, thankfully. No accent delivery required. No accent, what could that be a reference to? Um, well, I don't know. Yes, yes so that, 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 uh, that short, short story did get a strong reaction. Yes, yeah, no, a lot, everyone loved the... Uh, this is 10-year-old Charlie who uh, sent us in... Uh, a story about uh, Black Balloon. Uh, brilliant, 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 said uh, another person. Such easy and enjoyable listening. And 10-year-old Charlie, what a star. Can't wait for next week's. Uh, to quote a well-known phrase, this is from Sparkly Darkly. To Sparkly quote, Darkly. Yes. To, to quote a well-known phrase, really enjoyed, uh, fabulous, really enjoyed both interviews. Robbie Williams was a total surprise. Very much changed my opinion of him. Linda LaPlante, extremely erudite, as always, look forward to her writings. Carry on, chaps. Loving the easy style, but informative nature too. Any chance of a podcast with the seriously naughty non-BBC compliant tales too? Are we are we in that kind of zone yet where we can start doing well, adult-only books? I don't think so. Well, no. Well, but the thing is, this is just this is an independent po- podcast, isn't it? We oh, of can course. say whatever we want. Really, I'm looking forward to this because we can talk about Vocal Zone. We're not getting paid. Uh, we can start telling people how to vote. Is that how it works? No, now? I don't think so. No? All oh, right. <laughs> can we? I don't, I don't think so. Uh, Tracy1671. Honestly, this is the first podcast I've listened to, and it was lovely tears having it. Yeah. Redacted. I'm, I'm getting slightly embarrassed by yeah. this whole thing. Now. Oh, it is. But it, is, it, it was great to get all of the reviews and... Uh, Thank you for saying nice things. Yes, it does. We, we, we really appreciate it. Uh, and uh, as you know, <clears throat> we were going to be talking about two books uh, in each one of the main episodes. There will probably be a fiction and there will probably be a non-fiction uh, in each. And we've teamed up with those nice people at audible.co.uk. Yes. To offer you a free audiobook of your choice. All you have to do is to register for a one-month free trial to claim your free audiobook. There are over 200,000 to choose from. I account for only two, which is a little bit embarrassing. <laughs> the 30-day free trial means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep, whether or not you decide to cancel in the trial period. And you can sign up at audible.co.uk slash books of the year. What's that address again? This It's funny, just saying this stuff makes me feel slightly... Wrong? Yeah. yeah, slightly naughty. Mm. Audible.co.uk slash 
books of the year. There you go. Yes, fabulous okay. stuff. Uh, that's very good. So, thank you very much for all the praise. <laughs> yes, please do send more in. Uh, and on with the show. So here we go with two more books of the year for you. Louis de Bernier's So Much Life Left Over. Louis, hello, how are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very nice to see you again. And Ben Rhodes, The World As It Is, inside the Obama White House. Ben, how are you? Hello, good to be here in it's, London. It's, it's very, nice to, very nice to see you. Matt, do you want to do yes. book, uh, cover descriptions, please? Describe for these both. covers. Yes. OK, so Ben's book uh, is, well, we've got mainly it's a white background and then in big, bold, red letters, The World As It Is. But what will catch your eye is the picture just at the bottom, which is, uh, I'm guessing this is taken in the, in the Oval Office, President Obama on one side of, uh, of of the desk and Ben on the other writing something down. As he was President Obama's writer, that will be what he did. And his signature is at the top. Uh, Louis' book uh, is a picture of... A, it feels like a sort of sepia-tinted picture, but it's in colour... Um, that's clearly a, a sort of dated picture from Between the Wars, which we'll uh, get onto in a second. And I'm going to guess that this is a picture taken in Salon, where uh, the, certainly the start of the book is set. And we've got a couple looking out to the, uh, to the uh, photographer and a sort of avenue um, surrounded by trees and Louis de Bernier's name at the top and so much life left over picked out in bold and white. Very good, very beautiful well, description. Well, I I well yes, yes, very happy with well, that. That's all yeah. we've got time for, so uh, <laughs> thanks to Louis and to Ben. <laughs> for coming in when you're uh, when you're traveling the world uh, and promoting the book ben first do you do you have time to read lots of other books do you get time to write whatever's going to be coming next do you find yourself singularly obsessed with just promotion how's it how's it feeling for you well for me uh it's been interesting um because i was traveling across the united states first and for me people react to this book based on you know, their experience of the last 10 years, but where they live in the United States colors in part how they react to it, right? Um, what their political views are. There's such regional differences in the United States about, you know, what issues people care about. So for me, the most interesting thing, and, and now going abroad, of course, people are focused uh, on the perspective from whatever country they're in. Yeah. So for me, it's an odd experience to see how my lived decade with Obama how that was experienced by people in different parts of the United States and different parts of the world. And everywhere I go, uh, I get reflected back on me, um, the impact Obama had on one piece of, uh, of the wider world. But are you finding it creative? Are you finding that you can find time to work on your next project? Or are you reading lots of other things? How is that working for you? Yes. Um, you know, it, it's made me think a lot about um, how um, people are reacting to American politics and American political leadership and uh, my, I think my next project, I, I really want to focus on how is the world adjusting to the changes in America, um, and, and, and not from a policy level, but you know, how is it impacting everything from how people do business to how foreign governments are adjusting to this new world yeah. where America is unrecognizable to them? Um, and so I've begun to take notes on, uh, on basically how is the world looking at the United States under Trump after Obama? And, and who are the characters and who are the voices uh, that might illuminate that for readers in the United States and around the world? And Louis, when you're, uh, when you're out and about and talking about the work, uh, do you find that a stimulating experience? Do you dread having to come into places like this and, uh, and explain? Or, or do you see this as like the harvest time? You know, you spend a lot of time in front of your computer. Now's the time to enjoy it. 
I do enjoy the travelling around. I mean, it has technical problems in that I've got two young children and a dog and two cats. I mean, that's a nightmare, trying to organise what to do with them when I'm away. But I, I, I do enjoy the travelling around and talking. The, the main peculiarity, though, is that by the time a book comes out, I'm already halfway through the next one, um, which means flipping my mind back to stuff that I'd already laid aside. But, but you know, when, when I'm travelling, I... I mean, I don't travel with a laptop or anything. I travel with a notebook, and I find the nicest thing about going somewhere is I always come back with a poem or two in my notebook. So, and do you compose on the road? Do you find that can you write in your head and then write? You know, if you're in the car or something, can you do that? Yes, yes, yes. Um, I've, I, I once a poem once came to me when I was driving, and I had to memorise it as I was driving. <laughs> And the same thing happened to me recently. I was stuck in holiday, bank holiday traffic on the way from Chichester to, to Norfolk, and by the time I got home, I had quite a long ballad. <laughs> really? Wow. <laughs> ben, that's a, that's a... OK, so, yeah. so you were... Yeah. When you were writing... Getting stuck in traffic would be yeah. a good way to write, write more, I guess. Yeah. So when you're writing speeches for President Obama, yeah. did, could, could you compose in your head? Did you have to have a laptop in front of you? Did you have to have a pen and paper? Or could you construct phrases and, and then try and remember them a yeah. bit of the way Louis remembers no, a ballad? You know, a speech is not unlike a book in miniature in that it's always in your head. You know, and you, you wake up and you're walking around and going through your day and you're thinking about how am I going to solve the next problem in this? And because I wrote a lot of the speeches he gave about foreign affairs, we wrote a lot of those on the road, you know, on airplanes, in hotel rooms, in motorcades. And he was constantly working on them to the very last minute. So Obama would be handing me edits, handwritten edits of these speech drafts. And so I would be sitting in a bilateral meeting with a foreign leader or on a flight. And, and all I'm thinking about is, how do I get Obama to say this thing exactly just so? Um, and and you were also, also often writing about a place that you hadn't gotten to. Um, you know, I remember Obama was going to be the first president to speak in Hiroshima. And I'm reading all these accounts, uh, firsthand accounts of the atomic bomb, because I'm trying to put myself in this moment of, of, of the U.S. president, the, the president of the country that dropped this bomb that destroyed this city is going to be the first U.S. president to go back there and speak to people, including survivors. And so I'm on this trip where... You know, we're dealing with foreign policy and we're going to we went to Vietnam and actually he sat down with Anthony Bourdain uh, on that trip. Um, but I am inhabiting all these stories of these atomic bomb survivors because I have to, to get myself mentally in the place of the speech he has to give. So to me, um, I would live with the speech all up until the moment when it was sent into that teleprompter machine or the the text that Obama was going to read, and then I could move on. I wonder if, if you could illustrate your role with the president, although he wasn't president at the time, um, by just explaining a story. I'm going to try and get this word right, yes. okay, which you talk about early on. Yeah. Uh, and the word is Schicksalgemeinschaft. Well, better than I could have said it, yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So this is this, to me, illustrates the complexity and the danger and yeah. the thrill of speech writing yeah. all in one. I mean, everyone knows that the Germans can yeah. have... Long words, but Schicksalgemeinschaft uh, is, is a perfect one to start with. Just explain a little bit. So he was going to Berlin in the 2008 campaign, the same trip that brought him here to London. And this was the highest stakes thing we were doing. He was going to travel abroad to several countries. The question is, could he fill that role of President of the United States abroad uh, to clear that last uh, hurdle um, so people could imagine him holding the office? He was going to speak to 250,000 people in Berlin. We frankly didn't know the crowd was going to be that big. 
uh, on the flight over, Obama actually said to me, you know, what, what if nobody shows up? Uh, we landed and we saw the crowds and we knew that wasn't going to be a problem. Uh, and I had, in writing the speech, tried to go back and I read the iconic speeches by John F. Kennedy and Ronald Reagan. And, you know, usually you have one German phrase that you stick in there, like Ich bin ein Berliner, um, that encapsulates your theme. And there was a great story I'd read about the American candy bombers um, who had dropped airlifted food and even candy for children into Berlin at the height of the Cold War. And it kind of spoke to Obama's view of American foreign policy that we lead with our values, not just our military might. Um, that phrase means, that word means community of fate uh, in English. And that was a wonderful way of saying what Obama's message was. You know, we are the ones we've been waiting for. Yes, we can. We're all part of a community of fate. It felt like a really Obama thing. And so we ended the speech on this, this phrase and then said the word in German. And I remember sitting in my hotel room a couple hours before the speech and staring at that word and thinking, well, it's a really long word. Could it really mean does it mean community of fate? You know, so I Googled it and sure enough, the Google translation said community of fate, but then, you know, a whole bunch of German stuff came up and there were a couple of Nazi references. I'm thinking, well, it's Germany, you know, who knows? But I called the translator, uh, a German guy who was translating a speech so that as Obama gave it, you know, German media could broadcast uh, the, the subtitles. And he said, Oh, thank, thank you so much for calling. This is the theme of one of Hitler's first speeches to the Reichstag. Okay. Um, and, and I was 30 years old at the time, right? I was young. Uh, I'm thinking, one, we're two hours away from the speech, and this is the climactic moment. This is the whole speech builds up to this. And I almost committed <laughs> something that could have sinked the whole campaign. You know? um, and two, I'm like, I got to go tell Obama. So I go up to his room, and he's in workout clothes. He's smoking back then. So he's sitting there having Marlboro Reds, and I'm kind of thinking, how can he get away with smoking in this hotel room? Then I'm thinking, well, of course he can. <laughs> oh, he's Barack Obama. He can do whatever he wants. Um, <laughs> and I tell him, I'm like, you know that phrase you really like? Uh, it means <laughs> community fate, but it actually is the theme of one of Hitler's first speeches, the Reichstag. And he kind of holds out his moment, his hand, like, give me a moment here to process this. And I had no idea what was coming. He's going to yell at me or... And he just collapses in laughter. Um, and he says, you know, we have our employee of the month here. Um, <laughs> and it was a good window into him because he kind of got the absurdity of, of what journey we were on. You know, that he didn't expect to be there either any more than I did. And um, we ended up taking it out, of course. Uh, but you realize, you know, as a speechwriter, in, in the, the stakes of these, the, you're this close to making a fatal mistake. Uh, mm. You feel like on every one of these things. Um, and there's a huge adrenaline rush in that, but there's also a lot of paranoia that goes along yeah. with it. But that, ich bin ein Berliner was a mistake as well. It should have been ich bin Berliner. That means I'm a carriage. So so that's this is actually why I looked up, the, because I'm, I didn't want to make that mistake. Uh, you know, so I knew the famous, you know, whether I'm a jelly donut or I'm a carriage. <laughs> And, and I was like, I better Google this to make sure it translates right. And, and, and instead, it turned out to be a much different kind of mistake we could have made. Google Translate, I'm constantly saying to my kids, you can't rely on that. I mean, it might, might be okay <laughs> yeah. for a, a phone conversation, but yeah. don't put that into, into anything yes. that you want to be judged. Exactly. Uh, Matt Williams yeah. on the world as it is. Yes, I, I devoured this book, Ben. I was really looking forward to it. I was I, obviously the selling point of this is always going to be taking you inside the White House, taking yeah. you inside uh, something that we see in movies, we see in films, and and on TV. But but you, you want to get a sense of, of being in there. There are a couple of things I do want to ask you about. One is this revelation you made. I think it's pretty pretty early in the book where you say you didn't actually listen to the speeches that you had written. So when Obama was delivering these speeches, you couldn't bear to listen. 
Yeah, you know, being a speechwriter is a strange place because you are completely obsessed with this text um, and you kind of have ownership of it throughout the process. And then it is released out into the world when Barack Obama delivers it. And I would, I was a nervous wreck when he would be delivering because I would always find the thing that I didn't like in it as he was speaking those words. But I think in a strange way, um, I had to, you, you kind of let go of it. And when you're writing for somebody else in somebody else's voice, when he's giving that speech, you know, uh, my job is over in a way. Uh, I describe it as when you're a speechwriter, you're the most indispensable person on the staff until you don't matter at all anymore <laughs> yeah. when he's actually mm-hmm. delivering the speech. Mm-hmm. And so it's that combination of nerves, but also that sense of, OK, I've, my task is done. I can move on to the next thing. I, I spent a lot of time at, at iconic Obama speeches pacing outside. Uh, avoiding having to be in the room myself. Uh, but, but there is one speech that... I've, there's a part of a speech that he gives, which I, uh, I'd i love you to tell a story about, which is, I'm just going to call it the Amazing Grace yeah. speech, which, yeah. just to tell us the context of it. Well, that, that was in a... You know, um, we were... It, it was 2015, uh, and um, uh, there had been this shooting in a black church in uh, Charleston that was South Carolina, which was particularly awful. A, a young white supremacist went into this church and asked to join a Bible study, study and was welcomed by uh, these African-Americans, and then he, he shot them all. Um, and um, it, it was a combination of the racism in America and the gun violence, you know, two of the most toxic issues that that uh, that shadowed the Obama presidency. He originally said to us, I've given too many eulogies because of gun violence. I don't even know that I have the words to summon on this. And maybe I'll just attend this memorial service and not speak. Um, but he ultimately ended up going. He, uh, we, he got a first draft of this speech. And uh, you as a speechwriter, and I was not the lead speechwriter on this because uh, it, it didn't have to do with the world, didn't have to do with foreign policy. But I was very close to the guy who was writing it. He's one of my closest friends. You're hoping that Obama will rewrite the speech because actually the more he puts his own voice into it, the better it's going to be. Mm. And the night before, he had rewritten the whole speech by hand, and he had framed it around this concept of grace and the American hymn Amazing Grace. And as he was getting ready to leave, he made an, a comment that caught us off guard. He said, you know, if the spirit moves me, maybe I'll sing. And we th- didn't think that he was actually going to do that. I didn't go with him. I was sitting in my office, and I was beaten down this time. I described the kind of the toll that these jobs take on you. Is a, t- a period of particular exhaustion. Um, and I'm sitting and watching him deliver the speech, and I can tell uh, he's finding a voice here that I haven't heard before. And, and often in black churches, he would kind of almost, you know, he, he would summon that tradition of American oratory and, and feed off the audience. And, and already that speech was one of his best ones. But then I remember I'm watching this man who I've sat across from for, you know, thousands of hours the last decade. And I see him get to this moment in the speech where he just pauses. And it's a long pause. And I can see something in his, in his eyes. And I'm like, oh, my God, he's going to sing. Like, I could tell. Uh, and, and suddenly this sound emerges from him. And he's singing. And you could see the, just the release in that mm-hmm. room. People jump to their feet. There's mourning, but joy and, and every kind of emotion encapsulated as he sings the words to Amazing Grace. And I'm sitting at my desk and I'm just sobbing, you know, and I don't, I'm not a crier. Um, but it felt like this release of 
all of the emotions that had been building up uh, inside of him and inside of all of us the, about this tragic event in Charleston, the loss of those people, but also all these forces in American life. And can we salvage something hopeful from from that type of tragedy? And you know, when you work for a political leader, there's always something that is, particularly a transformative one like Obama, unknowable, intangible about them. They find a reservoir inside themselves that you didn't know was there. And that, and as I'm watching him sing, I'm thinking, this is that 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 unknown piece of Obama emerging, and we're all witnessing it. And it was like witnessing the purest expression of who he was for the very first time. Both the titles uh, of the books that we uh, we're discussing today, Louis, so much life left over, and Ben, your the world as it is. They're very evocative titles. Sometimes you get the feeling that titles are kind of throwaway. Both of them yeah. are very um, central to to the words that come in between the covers. Can you just explain, Ben, how you've ended up with the world as it is yeah. as the title? So, uh, you know, another speech he gave uh, when he got the Nobel Peace Prize, um, you know, he uh, also rewrote a lot of that speech, and I was a speechwriter on that. And um, he made that speech about the central tension of uh, not him getting the award early in his presidency, but uh, him being the commander in chief of a nation at war and getting a peace prize. Um, and he turned it into almost a meditation on, you know, the fact that war is ultimately a failure, but it's sometimes necessary in, in our world. And he ended on a concept that um, you have to recognize the world as it is um, in order to pursue the world as it should be. Um, so it's not just it's not a kind of policy statement of realism, which is, I think, how it can be taken. And, I, and that's fair. But what he's saying is to be an idealist, to be someone who wants to aspire to be like a Martin Luther King or a Gandhi, who are his heroes or Mandela. Um, you have to first look squarely at the world as it is in order to be an idealist, mm. because if you don't do that, then you're just then it's naive. Um, and so to me. The world as it is is actually the gateway to idealism, that if you can look squarely at the world as it is in all its ugliness and complexity at times, uh, that is a prerequisite to then trying to work for the world as it should be. Because you say towards the end of the book, Obama continues to give me faith in the world as it ought to be. Yes. Um, and, and, and again, in order uh, the, to, to, to have that faith, um, you have to, to be willing to confront uh, the realities of the world as it is. Can I be provocative then? Yeah. Looking at what's come after. Yeah. Um, your White House. I say your White House, but yeah. obviously it was the Obama White House, White House yeah. that you were in. Isn't? Um, could you say that what's come after has been, from an Obama supporter's point of view, a massive sort of indictment of what you what you did, what you achieved? Uh, well, it's certainly a massive rejection of uh, of, uh, of what we did, um, and you know. That's that was the 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 absurdity in a way the the kind of dystopian reality that that, that of that transition from Obama to Trump was that in many respects you know he was uh, had been a successful two term president uh, he was quite popular at the end of his time in office our economy was in good shape um, we had accomplished some things around the world that were very important to us and and yet. This person, Donald Trump, who's kind of the manifestation of the opposite of every political, economic and social belief that Barack Obama has uh, comes in, into office. But, you know, the fact is that, um, you know, America has always been a 
competition. It's always been competing stories. Um, Obama used to tell me our whole job is to tell a good story about America and what we say and what we do. America was, you know, we were all created equal at the same time that there's slavery. Uh, you know, America has always had um, uh, the forces that could lead to an Obama and the forces that could lead to a Trump. And I don't think anybody thought that that story was going to be resolved once and for all when Barack Obama got elected. Uh, and Obama, you know, would always urge us to take that longer view of history. Um, and so the way I can reconcile it is um, we're still living out that competition over what the American story is. And Trump represents something very different. But just like Obama's election wasn't the end of the story, neither is Trump's. Um, and in, in America, I think is going to look a lot more like Barack Obama in 10 or 20 years. Um, and, and, and so this will sort itself out over time. Um, that may be me reaching for, <laughs> for optimism uh, and hope amidst a, a pretty dark moment. Um, but you have to see yourself as someone who's not just a, accumulating a scorecard of accomplishments in office. You're in a continuum of a very contested American hi- history. So, um, so in, in the early stages of the book where, where you record... Barack Obama, this is after Trump's election and in that interim period saying maybe I was 10 or 20 years too early. Is that is that what you're suggesting there, that, that the forces of demographics and history yeah. are on your side, even if this convulsion has happened now? Yes. I mean, what he's referring to there is that demographically, Donald Trump couldn't get elected in 20 years. Uh, uh, basically, a coalition of white voters um, expressing essentially a sense of grievance uh, at how America is changing couldn't... Uh, would be um, it, it would be impossible for that coalition to elect a president 20 years from now. Obama, in some ways, and he said to me it, as he made that comment, you know, there's going to end up being an Hispanic Barack Obama, an Asian Barack Obama in America. Um, in some ways, though, what he did is he uh, he jumped the line. You know, he he caught lightning in a bottle in 2008 um, as a young man. Um, ironically running against the same person that, that Donald Trump beat, Hillary Clinton. Um, and uh, and that, that's what he was expressing, is that um, the, 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 the Obama coalition um, that, that got him elected president twice, um, you know, is, is the future demographics of the United States. Um, Trump is kind of, I would hope, the the last expression of the backlash against that change that is taking place, not just against Obama, but against how American culture is changing, how American society is changing. Louis de Bernier, you as a, a writer and poet and musician, what have you made of the some of these stories which have been coming out of uh, Ben's book in the White House in the last few years? Um, I realise that's a very open question. <laughs> it is rather an open question, but I wanted to ask Ben about something which it seems to me as an outsider that whatever the American president wants to do, there's somebody who's going to stop him doing it. You know, the Supreme Court or the tension between Senate and Congress. It, it, Barack Obama couldn't do half of what he wanted to do, could he, simply because he couldn't get the votes behind him. That's exactly right. I mean, I think... Well, isn't isn't yeah. it the same actually true of, true of Trump? Yeah, I mean, I think the, the, the American presidency seems like such a gigantic office, an all-powerful office. Mm. But in fact, our system is designed to make it pretty contra- constrained. Mm. Um, Trump is, uh, faces significant constraints. The, the, the reason why, for instance, these elections matter in November is that the more you have control in Congress, the more you can do. Uh-huh. Um, we had, like Trump, control of Congress the first two years and did, frankly, a lot more than Trump has even done uh, through legislation. Um, but Trump is testing. I mean, the, the central thing to watch from as an outsider is 
he is testing those institutions because yeah. he is he is you know challenging the basis of the the rule of law and the independence of the judiciary in ways that normal presidents of both parties wouldn't. And so either those institutions will provide that check on him or they won't. And if they don't, then then we will see uh, serious changes in America. Mm. The another thing I've been thinking is that I remember when Reagan was elected, the, yeah. the, the stereotype of him was that he was just a mumbling idiot. Yeah. And he turned out to be someone who, with Gorbachev and Thatcher, managed to end the Cold War. And I wondered if we're, we're, we're all in danger of judging Donald Trump too soon. I would like to you know believe that as an american but the fact is um you know what is so different about trump is uh, you know ideologically i wouldn't agree with reagan but uh, you know trump is is in many ways just a profoundly unserious person i mean mm. the the cavalier approach to the truth for instance i mean mm. the the constant um bombardment of 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 lies frankly um is upending kind of American politics in a way that you know, Reagan was an outsider, but you know he had serious people around him and had a clear agenda. And well, he listened to his advisors. He listened to advisors. Yeah. When he spoke, he tried to tell the truth. Um, mm. If he told a, mis- a lie, uh, there would be some accountability to it. And, you know, Trump is is just he's a figure the likes that we haven't seen in his kind of hostility to. The, any sem- semblance of norms of how government operates or how a politician operates in, in that way he is uh you know challenging the the resilience of american institutions in a way that a reagan never would have mm. um and and frankly he's an expression of the a direction in our culture for some time uh you know reality television show kind of trivialization of politics uh a, a tribalism in in the media um, all that gets it gets its purest expression in the presidency of Trump. I, I read somewhere that he he never thought he could win, and, and that running for the presidency presidency was really just a publicity stunt. I mean, do, do you go with that at all, or is that just a? Yeah, you know, I mean, I, I think that that there's that's certainly the appearance. However, what I in writing the book, you know, it's so interesting to you find connections that you didn't realize at the time. Mm. We have to go back and, and wrestle with 10 years. And what I found is that Trump was kind of the logical endpoint of the direction of, of certain kind of politics in the United States. You know, we had, uh, I described that when we were in the campaign, you know, in 2008, we had a problem of forwarded emails. You know, people would write emails about how Barack Obama was really a secret Muslim or he was mm-hmm. not born in the United States. And they'd be forwarded around so much that, uh, we actually had to give people answers to these questions. Yes. Well, Sarah Palin, when she was nominated as vice president, suddenly those forwarded emails were like the vice presidential nominee of the Republicans. And suddenly you have someone saying these things out in the open and kind of mainstreamed that kind of paranoid conspiracy theory, kind of white grievance politics. Mm. And then you had kind of this uh, blanket opposition to everything Obama did um, and hostility to anything Obama did, coupled with conspiracy theory including Trump saying, you know, he wasn't born in the United States. And by the time the Republican presidential campaign started in 2015, Donald Trump was the most logical nominee of that party because, mm-hmm. you know, it just all out hostility to Obama, conspiracy theory, uh, kind of white grievance. Um, you know, he seemed like an alien, <laughs> uh, you know, landed on that stage. But in fact, the reason that he was the leader of that pack, the entire race is because that's actually the direction that, 
that that politics had had gone in uh, yeah. under under Obama and frankly probably for the last two decades. Just to remind you that you can download these books, can't you, Matt? Yes, you can, uh, because we have teamed up with audible.co.uk uh, uh, and you will get a free audio book of your choice as long as, this is what you have to do, register for a one-month free trial to claim your free audio book. There are over 200,000 200, to choose from, including uh, Ben's book. I think Ben has read The Start of his book. And then lost interest. And then, lost, and then some, some actor, he said, took over after that. Uh, Louis is also going to be available on Audible. Uh, there's a 30-day free trial, which means you can choose a free audiobook, which is yours to keep whether you decide to cancel in the trial period or not. And the way to do it is you sign up at audible.co.uk forward slash books of the year. So audible.co.uk slash books of the year. Ben Rhodes' book is The World As It Is. We'll talk more uh, with Ben in a bit. Louis de Bernier's book is So Much Life Left Over, and we've described the cover, uh, Louis, and uh, I love the title. I think both titles of our, of our books today are very evocative. Can you explain as much as you feel free to about why this is the title of the book? Please? There are two reasons. Uh, one is that I like titles that have a poetic uh, rhythm to them. So that this is a trochaic trimeter. It's da 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 da. So much life left over. You see what so I mean? just explain what it is again. A trochaic trimeter. Okay. So it's okay. three three feet. Where it, it's basically um, so much life left over. You see, boom 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 boom. Okay. So that's my my previous book was a trochaic iambic trimeter. But uh, but the real reason is that uh, this is a part of a family saga, although I want the volumes to be able to be read separately. And in the previous book, there are two fighter pilots who survived the First World War unexpectedly. They both thought they were going to be killed. And they have a conversation towards the end of that book about what on earth are they going to do with so much life left over. And so I, I, took, I took that... Um, that phrase from that conversation for the title of the next volume. So this is what they do next. Reading these two books together, one time, you know, I felt for Ben and for President Obama, maybe that so much life left over is sort of like what's, you know, what's what's still to come. But I, I thought, Louis, as a, it's a, it's a wonderful kind of engine for your story. This sense of, blimey, we survived, we survived the war, which we did not expect to do, yeah. and. What do we do next? Yes. I, I'm only put, trying to put myself in their place. I think that's what I would have felt having survived a war like that. Um, I, I asked my father what it was like to have survived the Second World War and he didn't really know how to answer. I, I, sa I said, have, have you ever done anything as important as that again? And he, actually my father thought that he had because he ran a children's charity. But I think for a lot of people, the, 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 living after a war is some kind of very confusing, bewildering postscript to, to the most important thing they have ever done. Would we call it survivor's guilt now, or is it some? Is it more complex than that? I, I, I think bewilderment is a better word. So introduce us to Rosie and Daniel. As you say, this is mm. it, 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 this book stands on its own, but it's also uh, it comes after the dust that falls from dreams. Just introduce us again to Rosie and Daniel, then, and who they are, and where and where they are. Yeah. Well. There are three families living side by side in a street in Elton, which used to be Kent and is now London. And um, they're Edwardian children. They call themselves the Pals. There's a whole pack of them. 
Um, Rosie lives in the middle house and she, she, with her three sisters and she's in, she's in love with a boy next door, an American boy next door called Ashbridge. And Ashbridge volunteers for the, um, for the British Army even though he's an American citizen and he, he gets taken on. And uh, he's, he's killed within weeks in 1915 and this is based on what actually did happen in my family. And um, th- there's another boy on the other side who lives next door called Daniel with his brother Archie and Archie is horribly in love with Rosie and never manages to get over that. He ends up on the northwest frontier to be as far away from his passion as he possibly can be. But Daniel and Rosie get married in 1918, and um, it it, re- it really doesn't work out for them. They're not they're not temperamentally the same. So, for example, Rosie is very religious, and Daniel thinks it's a load of rubbish. You know, and they, this is that they, they they make a muddle of their efforts to survive um, after the First World War. Uh, there was terrible unemployment, which was made worse by the crash, which I think was in 1928. Um, and, and what the novel does is take all of the characters, plus one or two more, from the First World War to the beginning of the Second World War, when suddenly there's something terribly important to do again. Yes, which, which I want to come to in just a moment. Can, mm. um, it's dedicated to your grandparents. You've hinted at... Um, your own family's in, yeah. input here. He's dedicated to your grandparents who tried to start a new life in, in Salong. I think the, the word tried is quite uh, interesting. <laughs> but just, ex, just explain that. Well, I, I actually don't know what went wrong, which is a good thing because I'm writing fiction. I'm not writing a family history. I'm, I'm make, what I'm trying to do is create elaborate lies so that we've got a sort of virtual or metaphorical truth rather than what really did happen. Um, my grandparents did go out to Salon to um, to work on the tea plantations. My grandfather was more of an engineer than anything else, and I think he was probably maintaining the machinery. Um, but something went wrong. My grandmother, for example, had a miscarriage, uh, and then and then later on, my father was born. And for some reason, nobody knows they came home. And after that, they progressively drifted apart until my grandfather was away so long that he hadn't gone back at all. Mm. It's all been a terrible mystery. My grandfather turned up dead in the Rocky Mountains at the age of 96, living in a little green hut um, uh, to a place called Headley, you know, in in B.C. And um, I went out to Canada to try and find out what on earth his story was because my my father had just thought his, his father was a complete loser, no good for anything. He had never given my grandmother any money and stuff and was a terrible father because he simply wasn't there. And I went out to Canada to try and find out from my grandfather's friends what, what his version of the story was. This happened about 20 years ago in the, well, in the 1990s and the, the, the story has been brewing ever since until it's no longer anything to do with what really happened but, um, you know, a fiction. Uh, we're discussing Louis de Benny's book, So Much Life Left Over. Matt, what did uh, yeah, what no, you make of this? I, I know you I, loved it. I love this as well, Louis. And, and it's interesting because I didn't, I didn't know any of this backstory at all. It's, it's interesting how many parallels there are between what actually... There's no hut in British Columbia. That doesn't, that doesn't <laughs> turn up in the book. But, uh, but, but so m- much of the rest of it is. You were talking earlier about, about the title of the book and you were talking about this sort of sense of bewilderment that what do I do now? I, I've survived something that I didn't expect. Or I, I thought for certain I was going to die in mm. the First World War and yet I didn't. I have to say, I took from the book a, a really positive message. I'm, I'm not going to give anything away, but there is a character in the book who suffers a dreadful bereavement and 
decides, that's it, I'm going to take my own life. And he goes to Beachy Head and is on the point of throwing himself off um, and is talked out of it. And, and the guy who talks him out talks about how there is so much life left over. And I, and th- th- that message stayed with me after I'd finished reading the book and, mm-hmm. and for, for days afterwards of how it, it felt to me not bewildering at all. It, f- it felt really positive. Mm-hmm. It felt as I, I felt more optimistic about, about what was left over. Yes. Uh, Captain Raphael also says uh, um, uh, there is so much necessary work, things that have to be done. Mm. You, c- you can't just opt out because of your own despair, you know, you, what keeps you going is actually other people. So the, the, the book really is, I think, mostly about love. What keeps all of my characters going is love in one form or another, whether it's you know, romantic passion or parenthood or just or patriotism. All these different kinds of love. It's, it's, that's what keeps people going on more than anything else. Also secrets as well. I, <laughs> often, often with these kind of books, there's always like there's a secret that no one's supposed to know and that one of the main characters has got something going on and, and who knows. But this is a great book in the sense that this, there are quite a few characters who've got secrets, but everyone, know, everyone else knows what the secret is, but they're just not telling him, oh, yeah, we know about your kid or your lover or whatever else has gone on in your life. Yes, that there's a relationship between two women which is open openly and clearly a uh, lesbian, but um, nobody is, actually talks about it. And, and in the village where I grew up in Surrey, there was a lesbian couple who lived together as, you know, companions. And as far as I remember, nobody once mentioned the word lesbian in all the 30 years my parents lived there. These secrets are so much easier to manage if you don't really pay them any attention. It's such a great driver for drama as well, mm, though, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, you have lots of brief, climactic, dramatic chapters lots of different voices telling this story was were you always going to do it like that Louis did you did you know that you were going to have these different strands of narrative which you were then going to weld together I mean you've done that before but were you always going to tell this story this way all of my novels have been written in the same way apart from one I've only written one linear novel but I like having multiple narrators and I don't see in th- why in theory you shouldn't have a chapter which is a shopping list as long as it moves the story along in some way I mean, you can have a Webley 38 on the shopping list and you know that somebody wants to... You know what I mean? Yes. So, so um, it's, I, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a postmodern trick. I'm, I'm, I'm prepared to use any trick that's available, so I'm, I'm happy to have a chapter in the form of a letter, for example. Um, the, you, you try not to confuse the reader. You know, my litmus test is my father. If I confuse him, I know I've done it wrong. <laughs> is, he your, is he your ideal reader? Do you run things past him? No, my ideal reader is actually my little sister Susanna because ever since I started writing at about the age of 12 I showed her what I did and she always reassured me of my genius <laughs> <laughs> Ben, did you have an ideal reader when you were putting this book to, did, did you run it past, I don't know, your, your wife or I don't know, what, what, how does that work out? So my ideal reader is uh, my mother, uh, probably because she's been reassuring me of my genius since I was 12. Um, we, all need, we all need some yeah, of that. Yeah. Um, you know, because she's somebody who just loves and voraciously consumes books. And, and my ideal reader was someone who, I didn't want someone who was a political junkie. Um, you know, when I, when I sat down to write this, I, I, the genre of political memoir in the United States is a pretty terrible one. Um, so I wanted it to be someone who didn't necessarily know the backstory of all these events, frankly, wasn't looking for even just the, the intricacies of foreign policy, but, but someone who likes good stories and someone who likes good memoirs. And so my mother 
has that, that's what she likes to read. She likes to read mm. literary memoirs or novels. Um, and I wanted it to be a book that could connect with someone who had that type of taste, not just someone who gets the latest political yeah. memoir. Mm. Uh, Louis, was it, um, was it easy to, I mean, it feels effortless and beautiful, uh, conjuring up Ceylon, uh, the, the world of the plantations and mm. uh, the workers' huts and the colonial houses. Was that, was that fun for you? It was great fun. I, I made about three trips to Sri Lanka, um, and my mother was there in the Second World War. She was a signals officer with the Royal Navy on submarines. So she, 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 was, she loved Ceylon. You know, I remember when avocados suddenly turned up in the shops in the 1960s. She was absolutely thrilled. She hadn't seen one since 1945. You know, so she, she was terribly fond of Ceylon. She talked about it a lot. And I, I did, I think, three research trips, um, which were very good adventures and extremely interesting uh, for this book, I consulted a, a man called Professor Kingsley da Silva, who was a, a historian of, colo of British colonial, you know, history in, in, in Sri Lanka, and he 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 gave me masses of information. I needed to know what happened to the children of mixed race, for example, and he, he knew he knew it all. It, it's research. I don't know how you feel, Ben, but re research is, is is possibly the most interesting part of the job. Yeah, no, it, it, to me. Um that's that's the most fun uh, because you know you're finding, uh, you know, one of the things I like to do is 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 also imagining the stories that I I didn't even get to tell. I mean, just hearing Louis talk about Sri Lanka, you know, I describe um, some of my travel uh, to Burma, um, and I actually described the scene in the book of um, going uh, to Rangoon and meeting with people who are doing historical preservation. And I'm there to do politics and to meet with Aung San Suu Kyi. And, but these, these young people were obsessed with preserving the, the old city. And in the middle of this teeming Southeast Asian metropolis, they're taking me into these buildings that from the outside look totally dilapidated. But then there's just gorgeous Art Deco tiling. And you can and they take me to a theater that like from the outside looks totally run down. But inside, there's lavish red balconies and huge thick mm. curtains. And you're imagining all the stories that have taken place here, you know. Um, and so for me, uh, when I was even doing this book, I would have to learn more. I liked to learn more about the settings of places where we were. So I could just give just a little bit of backstory. You know, here's, you know, I wrote about Laos. You know, here's... Uh, but I kind of became consumed with learning the story of this this diff distant country that most Americans don't know anything about. I use very little of that in the book, but you know, in your own mind, you're thinking, what are the stories of all the people who pass through these places? And and maybe I'll return to those someday, hopefully, uh, to, to 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 tell those stories. One one of the things I like to do is, is walking through old graveyards. Yes, you yeah, find out yeah. that there was a yellow fever epidemic in 1908 and that yeah. kind of thing, which otherwise would have passed you. You know, yeah. was there any part of you, Louis, that when you were writing about these characters, had this intensity of being alive during World War One, that obviously they didn't miss the horrendous slaughter, but there was an intensity to their lives, which clearly they have been missing. Did you ever? I was just. I was thinking. Thankfully, we don't have those experiences anymore. We don't have those events which give us that sense of. Uh, intensity. Do you... Except we all have a youth which we look back on, you know, those sort of passionate days when we did idiotic things and sort of fell suicidally in love with inappropriate people and things. <laughs> we, we, all, we, all, we, all, we all have those things to look back on from a sort of safe distance. 
Um, you know, it's, I'm 63 and I feel a lot safer than I used to. <laughs> um, so I, I, I think we have an inkling of what it, of what it might have been like. Do you think? I just felt I, I introduced Bross at Wembley, and that was, <laughs> <laughs> that was the only thing that I could. They were a big yes. band in yeah. the 80s. Yeah, 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 yes, yeah. 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 I was just explaining we'll to our Americans. Yeah. <laughs> so much life left over. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. Goodness me. So, so are you saying your life is an anticlimax after that? No, it was just... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> First World War to broth. It was goodness just... Goodness me. Outstanding. Well, I was... OK. Maybe that analogy doesn't actually work very well. Uh, okay, uh, I, I readily con- I readily concede that. Uh, Louis, what are you going to be What are you going to be working on next? What is the uh, What is the You've already told us that you're kind of halfway through the next book, and you're having to r- remember where you were when you were writing this. Is it part three of this of, of this story? I'm writing part three of this story, and hoping there's not going to have to be a fourth part. I'm tr- I, I want it to end at about 1980. But I'm, I'm also, I've also got a poetry collection out in October and a book of short stories next year, so I've got quite a lot to do. Ben, do you want to continue uh, writing? Uh, I, th- this feels as though we want to understand more of the world as it is. Yeah. I would quite like to see your assessment of uh, four years of Trump and, you know, is, is this the area that you're going to be staying with? Well, you know, one of the things that's been really... Uh, interesting about uh, having this book out is for the first time in 10 years, um, I'm not speaking on behalf of somebody else. You know, um, uh, I'm not just, you know, explaining Barack Obama to people. Um, so uh, it, to me, it's exciting. You know, my life left over, um, you know, I'm only 40 um, uh, from this massive experience. The exciting thing to me is going to be able to tell stories in my own voice. And to me, what is always most interesting, and this is what is so interesting about what Louis done is, you know, the, is actual people, you know, to me, politics, policies um, are far less interesting than how the, the, the lived experience of people who were affected by them. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so what I would like to do is, is, is try to find the stories of people, um, like I said, who are, uh, you know, a world that a part of the world that I'm very interested in is, is Asia. And this is changing massively. You know, the Chinese are, Taking the place in many ways of the United States and the Asia Pacific region, and there's a there's a the sorting out that's taking place in, in business and politics and civil society and democratic movements, and I would like to tell the stories of of those people. What is it like to be in Southeast Asia and to be navigating this shift from American influence to Chinese influence? How is that impacting people's actual lives? Um, and so, yes, it does have to do with Trump because the world is changing because of Trump being president. The world is changing their views of the United States because of Trump being president. But to me, what's less interesting is kind of the reality show in Washington. And what's more interesting is, 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 is what does this mean for someone who's you know, a, a civil society activist in, in, in Burma? Or what does this mean for someone who's a business person in Singapore? Or what does this mean for someone who's a prime minister uh, of, a, of, a, of, of Japan, right? Um, and, and so I'd like to, 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 to lift those uh, actual human stories out of this, this very strange political moment we're in. And is it, is it fair to say, Ben, that, that Obama sort of heralded in this age of the, of the outsider? Because if, if we are looking for yeah. parallels, and I, and I get there are ma- massive differences between Trump and Obama, 
but Obama in, in 08 was seen as the outsider. Trump absolutely was the outsider. We've had recently um, a woman, young woman yeah. winning a, a, a primary in the States who was very much the outsider, who yeah. was outspent by 10 times uh, by her uh, opposing candidate. And there seems to be that kind of avenue going down, particularly in, in US politics at the moment, of the outsider uh, pre prevailing over the establishment. Yeah, I think that people uh, don't fully appreciate, as I reflect on this, you had the catastrophe, you had the 9-11 attacks, and then you had the, the twin catastrophes of the Iraq war and then our financial crisis. A complete failure, in my view, of the kind of foreign policy establishment and then kind of the, the economic policy establishment and the political establishment in general. I think those twin catastrophes made Americans uh, profoundly turned off of, uh, of, their, of their own establishment. Um, and uh, and searching for for outside voices, um, and uh, obviously Obama and Trump, they had some similarities in terms of their diagnosis of the problem. They had completely different solutions about what to do about that. But I think it does reflect. I think people don't realize how much the kind of American psyche uh, was impacted by the first decade of the 21st century, and, and those those seeming failures of the people who were supposed to know better. And it did make them open to um, uh, outside voices, non-traditional voices, um, and, and, you know, obviously, in my view, <laughs> to the worst with Trump. But I think we're going to continue to see that, that type of trend. And if uh, Barack Obama continues to give Ben faith in the world <laughs> as it ought to be, Louis, is there anyone who, who gives you faith in the world as it ought to be? I see it in the ordinary people around me. Yeah. You know, I, I live in a Norfolk village where everybody is really basically very decent, very helpful, full of loving kindness. And um, and I see that in my own children. I have two very young children. So th th that's really where I get my hope from. I think if other localities are the same as mine, then we're OK. I think we should finish before we lose the hope. It's all back to hope, Ben. So. Yes, see? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Familiar all, territory for it's you. It's a better place to, to land than fear. It is. Louis de Benia's book is So Much Life Left Over. Ben Rhodes' book is The World As It Is Inside the Obama White House. Ben and Louis, thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Thanks. There'll be another big show, um, you know, a proper episode, like episode yes. three, uh, on its way in a fortnight's time. Who right. are who are going to be our guests next We are time going around? to have, and there's really good books, these. Um, D.B. John has written a book about North Korea. Now, it is it is a fiction, it's a it's a thriller, but so much of it is is based on fact. And D.B. John uh, travelled extensively in North Korea, which you can't say for everyone. Uh, and so that's one guest. The other guest is Ant Middleton, who is ex-Parachute uh, Regiment, ex-Marines. You will have seen him on that SAS show uh, on the telly. And uh, he's also in Special Boat Squad. He's a bit of, of a weakling in yes, general. Yes, I really. reckon I could have him. No, I couldn't. Uh, so, uh, yes, yeah, so they're going to be our guests in, in a fortnight's time. And as and when, uh, what we'd really like to do is to feature some unpublished writing as well. And if you're listening to uh, episode one, you'll have heard the story from 10-year-old Charlie Hawkins. 
about his black balloon. Vicky Beale um, said, wonderfully empathetic, intuitive and sensitive story. Had me in tears on the treadmill this morning. A proud mum uh, for Gina, who's uh, Charlie's mum. Bravo, Charlie. I would read anything you write with anticipation. And Crumble Cake says, your little boy's story was amazing. Quite right that you should be a proud mum. Well done to Charlie for having such insight and emotional maturity at the age of 10. Not all of us uh, get that as adults. Uh, and I can safely say that from the point of view of being a psychologist. Oh, wow. uh, anyway, so thank you very much. We've passed all that on. Uh, and Charlie's mum is particularly proud. She is, yeah. Quite right so too. if you come across either as a parent or as a friend or as a teacher, some amazing writing, we will feature what we can and when we can. As we said last time, we don't want like a vast tome, a couple of paragraphs, like 90 seconds worth, that kind of thing. Um, that would be fantastic to uh, to see and to look over that. What's the email again? The email again is so simple. It's booksoftheyear at yahoo.com. Books of the year at yahoo.com. Matt, thank you so much for thank joining you. us once again. Uh, we'll see you with one of our mini episodes in a week's time and back with the big guests in a fortnight. Hi, my name is Kay Adams, and to be honest, I'm not so good with the ageing process, so I enlisted my old chum, the filter-free Cara McKenzie, to advise. Could you imagine being a porn star? The room would need to be really hot for me to strip <laughs> off. To be honest, she's not much help, but she is rather amusing. And along with some great guests, Joe Brand, Andy Oliver, Anton Dubeck, Ruth Langsford and Craig Revel Horwood, darling, we are learning how to be 60. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.